There is a Detroit, which is the, the traditional Detroit of highly segregated neighborhoods occupied primarily by low-income black families. These are neighborhoods that are essentially being abandoned by everybody. But there is an emerging corridor of approximately seven square miles that is seeing a definite gentrification and renewal. But it's seven square miles out of a city that's 139 square miles. So it's a tiny slice of the city. Hi, I'm Dallas Rogers, and you're listening to A Conversation Podcast. Today, Detroit is a city in crisis. The population is dwindling, the city has been declared officially bankrupt, and empty streets house row after row of abandoned buildings. But it wasn't always like this. I'm stepping into the time machine with Professor George Gulster to look back on the city's glory days. Well, Detroit was, in the early 20th century, the most wondrous city in the United States in the sense that it organized an industry which was ultimately going to produce what I believe is the most significant durable good produced anywhere in the 20th century. Of course, that's the automobile. And for a variety of accidental reasons, that industry coalesced in Detroit, and it coalesced in a place where an amazing amount of technological and entrepreneurial interventions happened in a way that brought down the price of an automobile such that not simply the rich could afford it. And this mass production technique that was originated in Detroit really set the stage not only for a tremendous change of, of the culture in the entire world that became auto-dependent, but also a, a change in the city of Detroit. It, it went from a backwater American city to the fifth largest American city in a matter of a couple of decades, amassing tremendous wealth along the way, attracting millions of people from all over the world to, to work in its auto factories. It, it was literally an amazing city in that time. During the Second World War, Detroit's car factories were retrofitted to produce the huge arsenal of weapons and ammunitions required for the war effort. The waves of worker immigration that followed changed the social fabric of the city. There was a terrible historical accident in some sense because at this point in America's history there was such a labor shortage that the manufacturers had to recruit workers from agricultural sectors of the United States which were primarily in the American South and so both African-American and white agricultural workers were given tickets to get on the train and come to Detroit and work in an environment for them that was completely alien. Not only were they inside a factory and in a big city, but they were in a big city where the traditional rules of segregation that they had known in the South were no longer. And so they had to renegotiate, if you will, some attributes that they were familiar with, but now in a northern industrial city. The racial tensions of the 20th century set the tone for ongoing problems today. In 1943, uh, the city of Detroit blew up, literally, in a vicious race riot with uh, cars driving through uh, an, the other race's neighborhood and people jumping out and grabbing random people and beating them, throwing firebombs, uh, dragging people off of public transportation and beating them. I mean, just the ugliest kind of racial hatred uh, ignited in the city of Detroit in 1943. And so, uh, the arsenal of democracy became uh, 
among other things, a, a crucible of, of racial hatred, which unfortunately the city is still trying to recover from to this day. In 1973, Detroit elected Coleman Young, the city's first ever African-American mayor. For the largely poor, urban black population, this was an important symbolic moment after years of racial tension in the city. But it also marked the beginning of a physical divide for residents. A lot of white residents realized that now with blacks in power, things were going to change and that now perhaps they would not see the benefits of city government. So many left the city to the suburbs and that kind of white flight has been ongoing ever since. The population of Detroit uh, actually started declining long before there were threats of blacks becoming a majority, either in the population or in the political power structure. Uh, the the post-war boom of housing in built in the suburban areas combined with generous mortgage subsidies from the federal government and new highway construction, which made those suburban areas very accessible to the downtown. Uh, those subsidies basically benefited for white home buyers and allowed them economically the means to move to the suburbs even if they had no racial animosity themselves. And then as population from the, the rural south continued, mainly black folks moving from increasingly violent situations in the south, you ultimately had a city which today is about 85 percent black population, about seven percent Hispanic or Latino population and just a handful of white population left. Compare that to an overwhelmingly white and much more affluent suburban ring around the municipality of Detroit and you have the, the political recipe for continued racial tensions because politicians both in the city and in the suburbs can use the race card in making generalizations and stereotypes about the other people in the other place that you don't want to go to, you don't want to collaborate with, and you certainly don't want to have a civil political discussion with. That's the region's legacy of racism today. Even after the city was declared officially bankrupt, it still remains divided. Today there are two Detroits one on the gentle path to recovery, and the other still in the midst of crisis. There is a Detroit which is the, the traditional Detroit of highly segregated neighborhoods occupied primarily by low-income black families. These are neighborhoods that are essentially being abandoned by everybody. Currently, one-third of the land area of the city of Detroit is vacant land, and the vacancy rates among standing structures in other neighborhoods are in double, double digits. So most of Detroit is still emptying out. It's becoming a, an abandoned place of ruins and a place of low quality of life for the vestiges of a low-income black population that are still living there. Uh, that's not a pretty future that those, those folks are facing. But there is an emerging corridor of approximately seven square miles that is seeing a definite gentrification and renewal. People who are young professionals, most of whom are white, under age 35, are definitely moving in. There's renovated buildings, renovated stores. There's a new trolley line going in, our first fixed rail transit since the end of World War II. There are definite signs of revival, but it's seven square miles out of a city that's 139 square miles. So it's a tiny slice of the city. Despite a past filled with racial violence, Detroit has a rich cultural history and a vibrant music scene. 
we reflect very well the, the soul of the city at a particular historical epoch in the music that we love. And so in the 1960s, we were an optimistic city, a city that still had a, a booming auto industry that was dominant in the world, a city that despite its segregation and racial prejudices, was a place that saw a growing black middle class, saw them getting good jobs in the auto industry, certainly compared to the rural South. And so Motown music, of which the world knows much, Aretha Franklin and the Four Tops and the Supremes, all those Detroit-based sounds are fundamentally optimistic. And maybe it might be about lost love, but essentially the world's a good place in which to live. Fast forward 20 years, the decline of the auto industry, the, the pending financial crisis of the city, and that sound is completely morphed into a, a much more alienated sound. Techno music, which also started in the city of Detroit, grew in that period. Fast forward another 20 years, and the frustration now among working class white folks has, has become palpable and it takes the form of Eminem songs about rap music and what what eight mile is like for him and so I mean our culture expresses itself in music extremely well uh, I'm not sure I want to know what the next wave of music is going to come out of the city of Detroit <laughs> because as you perhaps know we are officially bankrupt and we're either going to make a, a miraculous recovery or we're going to be buried the story of Detroit's changing fortunes is packed with lessons for urban planners. George Gulster thinks there are a few important messages for Australian planners to take away from the city's history. If you have an ethnically diverse society and you systematically exclude one group and discriminate against them in a variety of ways, your society will pay a price for that. Secondly, if you run public finance in very small box governments where individual municipalities have complete responsibilities for running everything from public safety to public schools to roads and you only allow them to tax the people and property within that small jurisdiction once that jurisdiction starts to decline in population or in the wealth of its property it's a downward spiral where they have to cut their public finances, cut the quality of public service, and it drives more and more people out in a, in a vicious, never-ending spiral. That's a recipe for disaster. The other lessons, I think, have to do with what the public sector is going to do with the leftovers of capitalism, if I can say that. Uh, the, the industry that powered Detroit essentially abandoned all of their factories that they had built in the first half of the 20th century it, during the second half of the 20th century, leaving behind literally millions and millions of square feet of concrete, steel, and toxic waste. Uh, the rules of the game that basically say the capitalists can do whatever they want, and if somebody else is left to pick up the, the, the trash after they're done, those rules have, have hugely contributed to Detroit's downfall. And last but not least, the lesson has to do with planning, planning for growth. Basically, in Metro Detroit, there is no planning. Every little jurisdiction can do whatever it wants in terms of housing development or industrial or commercial development. And so they're all in competition with each other for tax space, so each of them is very pro-development because that's the only way they get that tax space. The result has been 
uh, lots of permissiveness for the development of new housing, almost exclusively on the suburban fringe. In fact, we have produced in metropolitan area of Detroit approximately 10,000 more housing units per year than there have been households to fill them. You can't imagine this in Sydney, but we have had a perpetual housing excess in Detroit for over 60 years. Wow. And so the whole region keeps producing these houses because developers make profit by selling them, jurisdictions on the fringe love it by getting more tax base, but the mathematical inescapability is that as people move up to better housing, they're gonna vacate the least competitive housing and that's in the core of the city of right. Detroit. And so our population is literally being sucked out away from us, and that reduces our tax base and forces it into this financial crisis which we find ourselves today. For George Golster, Detroit is more than a case study of urban planning. To me, uh, Detroit is a place of terrific memories and, and horrible memories as well. Uh, it's a place where I've lived for 20 years, and when I moved to Detroit uh, 20 years ago, I became the fifth consecutive generation of George Galsters to live in Detroit. So it's a place that I feel very rooted to, uh, but it's a place that daily breaks my heart. So I want to fix it, but it, it's just so difficult to imagine fixing that sometimes I despair. But it's a place of, of great passion for me, so I, I can't get it out of my blood, I'm sure. Professor George Galster, thanks for joining me. 